John, the third chapter, would like for us to read the first 13 verses of this chapter. John 3, 1 through 13. Again, we continue with our study, a chronological study of the life of Christ in the New Testament. John 3, beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound of it, but canst not tell from whence it cometh and whence it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that which we do know, and testify to that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe even if I tell you heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. This morning I wish to speak to you on the subject, born again. It is a word, a phrase that we are quite familiar with. It is used out there in the secular world. Sometimes we hear of uh, people saying, well, I was just born again. They had a great change in their life. You know, maybe they divorced their first wife, ran off this young gal, and they started all over, born again. John Denver said he was born again when he came to the Rocky Mountains. Or the media uses the term to speak of born-again Christians, which basically means they're a bunch of kooks to watch out for. They're dangerous folks, these born-again Christians. And even in the religious world, we hear the word born-again believer, as if there was some other kind of believer, but the idea is is that these are born-again Christians as opposed to other Christians who would not call themselves born-again. But as I said before, it's sort of like saying country butter. What other kind of butter is there but country butter? To say born-again Christian is somewhat of a redundancy. There simply is no other kind. One thing is clear from our text, that if you do not have this thing called being born again, you are, in fact, outside the kingdom of God. But I'm also aware that even among evangelical circles where we ought to know better, this term is often misunderstood and ballied about, and so may God give us his aid and assistance this morning as we seek to delve into this text, this primary and key text concerning what we call the new birth. You'll notice in verse 1 that we are first introduced to a man named Nicodemus. He is introduced to us as a Pharisee, that is, he belonged to the strictest sect of the Jews, and that he is, in fact, a ruler of the Jews. And that fact would lead us to believe that here was a very prominent man in Jerusalem, a member of what was called the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of Jews, 70 men that rule over Israel in the primary day-to-day affairs of state. And here is a man who would correspond in our day to a senator or a man who was a member of the House of Representatives. In other words, this just didn't know Joe Blow out there on the street. This is somebody. This is a well-known, well-respected personage in the city of Jerusalem where Jesus is at this particular time. Twice, on two other occasions, John will mention this man again in his gospel. 
over in John, the seventh chapter, as the Jews have sent out soldiers to arrest Jesus and they come back empty-handed and these Jews are incensed because they didn't bring him back, Nicodemus pops up and says, Does our law judge any man before it hears him? Nicodemus, spoken of there, is a man at least interested in giving Jesus a hearing, at least in evaluating what his claims are. And then in John 19, we find that after Jesus' death, a man by the name of Joseph Arimathea comes and gets the body permission to take the body down from Pilate, and out of the blue comes this man, Nicodemus, with a large amount of myrrh and alloys, these spices to anoint the body of Jesus for its burial there as he is taken down from the cross. So on two other occasions, this man appears in the Gospel of John. This is the first, however, of the three occasions. You'll notice that John relates that he came in verse 2 to Jesus by night. It's interesting that he relates this fact, that he came to Jesus by night. And it must be significant because on those other two occasions, in John 7 and John 19... John relates in both cases that Nicodemus was the same that came to Jesus by night. In other words, to sort of set him off in our attention that this Nicodemus we're talking about, now he's the one who came to Jesus by night. It must have some significance to it. Well, may I point out to you that contrary to our custom, where when we generally go to visit with folks, we do it at night. Right? I mean, we want to go over and visit with you, have a sit down, have a talk. Usually, we're tied up during the day, so we go at night. Of course, that's a modern phenomenon, because we've got light bulbs. You know, we basically don't have darkness anymore. But in the ancient world, when the sun went down, everything came to a screeching halt, including socializing. Uh, Generally, when somebody came to your house in the middle of the night, it meant uh, one of two things. Either they were in trouble or you were in trouble. Uh, either they were in trouble, like, for instance, the parable of the man who had guests show up and he didn't have anything to feed them, so he went and woke his neighbor up in the middle of the night wanting to borrow something from him. In other words, you got problems over here. Or perhaps when the mob came and the soldiers to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in the night. You see, in the night was when those kinds of things took place. Uh, the writers of the epistles speak of the things that happened in the night as being bad things, evil things. You just didn't go over to somebody's house in the middle of the night. Sun went down, you went to bed. So the fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, to me is significant in the fact that here is a man who is still, shall we say, rather hesitant to be seen with Jesus in the daytime, to be identified with Jesus. This is sort of a preliminary visit. He is coming to sort of check things out. Sort of wants to buddy up to him, but still keep his distance. So he comes under the cover of darkness. And then, of course, there is one other little fact in the Gospel of John that we need to be aware of. And that is that John uses the figure of light and darkness in in a symbolic way. You remember back in chapter 1 of John where it speaks of Jesus, the Word, and that in him was life, and the life was the light of men, that light came into darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. You remember that language? Light and darkness is used in a figurative way in the Gospel of John. A good example of that is at the Last Supper, in the ending chapters of the Gospel of John, where Jesus gives Judas the sop, and he goes out, and John adds this little detail, and it was night. It seems that John would mean by that more than just the fact that the sun was down, but that Judas was literally leaving the light and going out into the darkness of apostasy. That little detail seems to imply that. And the little detail here that Nicodemus comes as someone who is rather learned scholarly fella, but John would remind us that he came to Jesus in the night, that he still, as we would say, in the dark concerning who exactly Jesus is. He seems to be a representative of that class spoken of in verses 23, 24, and 25 in chapter 2. Notice again, the big number 3 sort of interrupts our thought here. But notice that we have just spoken of a group of people who have believed on Jesus because they saw the miracles that he had done. And yet something's wrong. 
something's deficient in their faith because look at verse 24. Jesus did not commit himself unto them. And John adds, because he knew all men. He didn't need you to tell him or recommend somebody to him. He knew what was in the heart of men. In other words, there is something deficient in the faith here of these people who have trusted Christ, but he has not entrusted himself to them. And you would say, well, what exactly is wrong? What's wrong with their faith? Well, we're going to see that this is precisely the case of Nicodemus. For Nicodemus comes to Jesus saying, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. In other words, he has come to Jesus believing, believing something about Jesus because he has seen the miracles that Jesus has done. Now, I believe we can see what's lacking in this man's faith by the little phrase, we know. Look at that. Here in verse 2. The same came to Jesus by night, said unto him, Rabbi, we know. Now, you want to say, who's we? You got a mouse in your pocket? You know, who, who are you talking about here? What do you mean, we know? Well, you know, we use this, don't we, in this sense. Well, well, we know. You see, Nicodemus is not just a nobody, not just an underling, a fellow you'd meet out here on the street. He's one of the powers that be, the movers and the shakers in the city of Jerusalem. He's the John Ford, you know, of Jerusalem. He's the one that calls the shots. He's, he knows what's going on. He's a scholarly man, a noble man. A learned man. And basically he's saying, uh, you know, it's sort of like one of these political bosses says, you know, now we've uh, had our eye on you, son. We're impressed. And so we have decided that your claims are authentic. And we have decided to give you our endorsement. You sort of understand this sort of like back room, smoky room political talk. We've decided to support you in your run, in your bid for Messiah. You know, we're going to throw our weight behind you. We're going to put our influence behind you in your cause. Because we know that no man could do these miracles except God be with him. Do you understand the patronage, the condescension that goes along with that kind of language? Sort of like when you buy a product down here at Kmart and it's got UL approved on it. You know, the underwriters labs, they've tested it and they've decided to authenticate it, tell you it's okay. They'll put their stamp of approval, of authenticity upon it. That's exactly what Nicodemus, we've decided that we will authenticate your ministry. We've decided that we will say it's all right. Yes, you must be. We'll put our stamp, our UL stamp of approval on you. Well, that may impress other folks, but it doesn't impress Jesus. Now, before we go on here, let me say that on the other hand, I want to try to tell you that Nicodemus seems to represent the very best that Judaism could produce. I mean, he's a good man. Let's make no mistake about it. You'd be glad to have him as your next door neighbor. He's a learned man. He knows about all there is to know about most, just about anything. He's the best that the law can produce. And yet Jesus takes the very best example of what the law of Moses can produce. This one who comes to Jesus saying, well, we're, we're ready to put our weight behind you. We're going to help endorse your push for Messiah. Jesus says he doesn't know which end is up. That rather than being flattered by this man's endorsement, Jesus instead responds with this solemn pronouncement. And it, it's meant to be solemn, for it begins with these awful words, verily, verily. In the Greek, it's the word amen. Amen, sort of like the word shalom, could be a greeting, could be a benediction. 
The word amen has several flavors to it. We use it at the end of a prayer. We say amen to someone's praying, meaning that we agree. The word literally means so be it. But it may be used in the sense of an oath. And that's the way it's used here. Jesus begins this statement, amen, amen. It is, it is. I I don't know how, how to interpret it. It's hard to translate into English. But it's the idea of someone swearing that this is so. Swearing that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Nicodemus thinks he sees some things. That's what he's saying. We've been watching you. We've had our eye on you. And you know, we think we see God's work in you. We believe we see God's hand on you, so we're prepared to put our support behind you. Jesus says, I swear to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I would remind you that Nicodemus here takes Jesus in the most literal sense. Not always are we to understand our Lord literally. Nicodemus simply argues that this is absolutely absurd. How can a man, when he is old climb back in his mother's womb and be born all over again. And Jesus basically responds again by affirming in even stronger language that unless a man is born of water and of spirit, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. Rather than backing down and saying, oh yes, I see Nicodemus what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm probably not quite correct in my assessment. Jesus, in fact, drives the nail even further home. By saying again, that unless you're born of water and spirit, you're not going to enter the kingdom. Now, Nicodemus, it's interesting, is one of those who believes on Jesus to an extent. But the first time Jesus opens his mouth, he doesn't believe him. The scriptures call this temporary faith. They believe for a while. And sometimes temporary faith is about as temporary as anything can be. It lasts Maybe one instant. Men come saying, yes, Jesus, we believe on you. The next thing Jesus Jesus may say, they say, "Uh uh-uh, we don't believe that. You know, their faith lasted one sentence. They love to believe on Jesus when they saw the works that he did, but when they hear the words coming out of his mouth, they say, "Uh uh-uh, we don't buy that. We believe these things, but we don't believe what you say. And notice that's exactly what's happening here with Nicodemus. He says, I believe that you, you know, God must be with you. And then when Jesus says, you must be born again, he says, uh uh-uh, that can't be. How can I be born again? How can I get back in my mother's womb? What good would it do? And Jesus, in fact, agrees. Even if he could climb back in his mother's womb and be born all over again, flesh just begats flesh. Notice in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. The only kind of life you have from a fleshly birth is fleshly life. What we're talking about, as it makes plain, is a birth of the Spirit. A spiritual birth giving birth to spiritual life. In other words, Nicodemus, it's not a second birth in a sense. It's not a second fleshly birth, physical birth that you need. It is a birth of a different sort. In fact, the Greek verb... There in verse 3, except a man be born again, the adverb again is the word anathon, and it can be translated again, or it can be translated from above. In other words, Jesus could be saying, except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or he could be saying, except a man be born again. The word can be translated both ways. Now, Nicodemus understands him in the second of those sense of being born again, being born, as Nicodemus puts it, a second time. And certainly that's one way of looking at it. But then in another way of looking at it, it is a new birth from above, as opposed to another fleshly birth. It's not just a second birth, but it's birth from another source, being birthed from above, being born of the very Spirit of God. And furthermore, as Jesus explains, it's quite mysterious. I love these words in verse 8, that the wind blows where it lists. You hear the sound, but you cannot tell from whence it comes and where it goes. Now, today in our modern meteorology, we have an idea of which way the wind's going to blow. The weather forecaster is pretty accurate, saying uh, 
in the morning, the wind's going to be blowing out of the south. Or tomorrow, the wind will be blowing out of the north. But there's still a sense in it, which is very mysterious. Where'd that wind come from? Where's it come from and where's it going? And then while it's here, we don't really see the wind itself. We see its effects. I remember Kevin and I, we were traveling through Nebraska one time from Wyoming to Wisconsin. And I'm still not sure where we were, somewhere out in western Nebraska. And we go over this real high overpass. And there's this big sign. There's my witness right over there. There's this big sign that says, watch for wind. We watched real hard, and we never saw any. Watch for wind. Well, what do you mean? You don't see the wind. You see its effects. So it is that Jesus here speaks in that very language, the very mysterious nature of the wind. Oh, yes, there is such a thing as the wind. It comes from somewhere we don't know. It's going somewhere we don't know, and we don't understand it while it's here, but we certainly know it's here, and we see it, and we judge it by its effects. And so Jesus says, so it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. It's a very most mysterious thing that we're talking about. We don't know its origin. We don't know its destination. And we don't see it directly, but we see the effects in the lives of those who have been born of the Spirit of God. Now, I know some of you are bound to be saying, but Brother Mark, you sort of hurried over verse 5 there, where it says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. What do you mean by that, to be born of water and of the Spirit? Well, I would have you remember, if you look at verse 3, that what he called being born again in verse 3, he calls in verse 5 being born of water and the Spirit. These two verses should stand as relating to one another. They're saying the same thing in different words. Now, I say that as opposed to the idea that would, that would make Jesus to be saying that, well, you need two births. You need a first birth of water, and then you need a second birth of spirit. I mean, there are some who hold that that's what Jesus is saying. The first birth being a man's natural birth. After all, the, before birth, the amniotic fluid breaks, the water breaks, so to speak. And so that this is speaking of one's natural birth as opposed to a second birth, a birth of spirit. Uh, the only problem with that is that nowhere in the ancient literature do the ancient people ever speak of one's natural birth as being born of water. That's us reading into this what we would have it say. They just didn't talk in those terms. They didn't speak of natural birth in that sense. And furthermore, notice the parallelism with verse 3, that what he's spoken of as one birth in verse 3 must be one birth in verse 5. And some of the modern translations, by the way, because of that, translate it that way. Rather than saying in verse 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, they translate it, except a man be born of water and Spirit. And that's really the idea here. It's one birth that's being spoken of, a birth of water and Spirit. Well, that raises a second question. If we're not talking about two separate verses of births in verse 5, perhaps we are talking of what our Church of Christ friends call baptismal regeneration. Maybe he's talking about the fact that it is in the ritual of baptism that we, in fact, are born of water and of the Spirit. And that is the way the Campbellites, in fact, understand this verse. Well, may we say it's highly unlikely that Nicodemus would have understood this saying in that light in any sense. You'll notice that the idea of baptism doesn't appear in this text at all. And if anything, the Gospel of John tends to downplay the importance of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper compared to the other Gospel writers. No, I don't believe that's what it means, but I believe a hint is given to us in the rest of the text. Now, may I go on with the hint before we come back and try to explain this? You'll notice that the rest of the text, starting in verse 10, to answer Nicodemus' question, well, how can this be? Now, notice, this is a guy that supposedly believed on Jesus, you understand. And now he's saying, well, this, this is just impossible. How could this be? Jesus responds by saying, how in the world could you be a teacher and not know this? This is a teacher not even knowing his own subject. 
Now notice that Jesus is implying that Nicodemus should have known this. Do you understand? That's the inescapable conclusion that Nicodemus should have already understood what Jesus is saying here when he says, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. In fact, Jesus is just, as it were, flabbergasted. How could you be in the position of a doctor, a master, a teacher of Israel and not know this? And then he speaks of the fact that if you are not going to believe me, in verse 12, when I tell you earthly things, how shall you believe me when I tell you heavenly things? I must confess that for years this verse just threw me for a loop. Because at first I thought that, well, he must be talking about, for instance, his illustration of the wind. He's talking about physical things and then spiritual things. If you won't believe me concerning the wind, then you're not going to believe me concerning the new birth, this heavenly thing. But I notice that just doesn't fit. Jesus is not talking about the wind here. He's talking about the new birth, that it is the new birth that is the earthly thing. You see that? I mean, this was the thing that stumped me, is that in the text, what he has just spoken of, regeneration, the new birth, he must be referring here to the earthly things that he has just told him, because the heavenly things he hadn't told him yet. How will you believe me of the heavenly things that you haven't heard yet if you won't believe me of the earthly things I've already told you? And then one day, stumbling through John Brown's Discourses and the Sayings of Our Lord. Excellent, excellent book. John Brown, the old Scottish theologian from several hundred years ago, points out something that I had overlooked. He said that it seems that throughout John's Gospel and in other places in the New Testament, a contrast is made between that revelation that had already been given by God through the prophets and a new mode and manner of revelation that was coming through Christ. For instance, Hebrews 1.1, God who spake in times past by the prophets hath in these last days spoken by his Son. And that this new mode of revelation was higher, superior, plainer, clearer, superlative to that previous shadowy, incomplete, partial revelation that God had given through the prophets. And that that revelation that God had given on to the prophets had taken place on earth, whereas the revelation that Christ brings, where did he hear these things? Did he hear these things like a prophet on earth? No, over and again in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say, the things I'm saying I heard of my Father when I was with him in heaven. The prophets heard these things on earth. Christ heard what he brings in heaven. Now, we don't have time to develop that contrast. It's a very interesting study. The book of Hebrews even picks up on it in Hebrews 12, where he speaks of the word that spoke on earth from Mount Sinai, God's voice that was heard on earth. But a more important voice has now been heard, a voice from heaven God speaking now through his son. See the contrast in Hebrews 12 even. But I believe this is the key, that what Jesus is saying when he speaks of these earthly things is I'm telling you something that has already been revealed through the prophets. That the prophets on earth knew this. God had revealed this to them. In other words, Nicodemus, I'm coming to bring new revelation. And if you won't won't believe the old revelation, how in the world are you going to believe the new? Now, that means that this teaching that a man had to be born of water and spirit had to be taught somewhere already. Where had it been taught? Well, among other places, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Ezekiel prophesying to refugees in Babylon. Notice in Ezekiel 36, verse 24, he prophesies of their restoration. Ezekiel 36, 24, God says, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring a new heart 
also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Did you notice how the sprinkling with clean water and the Spirit are brought together here in what Ezekiel is describing is the Old Testament counterpart of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in John 3. Now we have an illustration as we go on into chapter 37, by the way. Ezekiel has this vision of dry bones. You know the story. You know the song if you don't know the story. You know the knee bone connected to the thigh bone and all that stuff. Well, there's these dry bones and... God comes to Ezekiel and says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, beats me. <laughs> I don't know. And God says to Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to these bones. Preach to them. He said, well, what do you want me to preach? He says, here's your message, Ezekiel. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. In other words, can you imagine a preacher standing in front of a bunch of skeletons, dissing, I mean, dry bones laying everywhere. Okay, bones, hear the word of the Lord. And as he begins to preach, the bones came together. But there's no breath. And he says, now prophesy to the wind. By the way, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for spirit is the same word as wind and breath. Prophesy to the wind, the spirit, to come and bro, to breathe into these slain. And it did, and they stood on their feet and they lived. There you have a picture of what we call in the New Testament regeneration. And notice the two elements in it. The word, he preached, hear the word of the Lord, and the spirit that came and breathed life into these slain. Notice again in Ezekiel 36, in verse 25, we have the idea of the God washing them, cleansing them with the water. And then, verse 26, taking away the old hard heart and putting His Spirit, in verse 27, within them to cause them to keep His ordinances and His statutes. In other words, here in Ezekiel 36, we have these two elements being born of water and Spirit. But, of course, the very last thing from Ezekiel's mind was the ordinance of baptism. In other words, this corresponds to the New Testament idea of how regeneration takes place. That there is a washing, but not with literal water. Wash you all day long and won't cleanse you from your sin and from your defilement. But it is a washing of the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, in John 13, speaks that you need to wash your feet. But you're all clean through the word that I've spoken to you. Look in he, uh, Ephesians 5. I mean, I see this puzzled look on your face. Let me show you how often this figure of this washing of water and regeneration are brought together in Scripture. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. In other words, it is the gospel. In receiving and believing the gospel, this washing of water that is in the word of God itself, that is the important thing. In Titus chapter 3, little book of Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. There we have the idea of the water and the Spirit brought together. But it is anything but the waters of baptism. Now, I don't want to downplay the importance of baptism, but baptism is a symbol signifying what has happened within. It is not the washing itself. For instance, Peter went to preach to the Gentiles at Cornelius' household. And as he spoke, what happened? The Spirit fell on them. And he says, can any man forbid water 
that these who have received the Spirit just like we have should not be baptized? Now notice, they didn't weren't baptized and then received the Spirit, but they're baptized because they have received the Spirit. And notice as well in the book of Acts, when Peter defends this before the apostles at the council in Jerusalem, he's saying, what else could I do? God purified their hearts by faith. Peter doesn't say they were baptized so they were cleaned up so God could receive them, but God purified their hearts by faith. They believed the Word. Notice what's going on now. Peter is there in the household preaching the Word. Remember Ezekiel? Preaching to the dry bones. Preaching the Word. And the Spirit, the breath of life, falls from heaven. The two things come together. The preaching of the Gospel and the renewing power of the Holy Spirit and Peter says, well, what else could we do but baptism? Bi- baptism. Baptize them. <clears throat> but baptism is the effect of all of this, not the cause. Now, I hate to belabor that point, but just so that you'll see that there's no misunderstanding here, that this is not only what we're being taught here in John 3, it's what Ezekiel prophesied back in chapter 36, and it's the practice of the apostles in the New Testament. If it is through baptism that men are regenerated, why in the world would Paul write to the church at Corinth and say, well, I baptized one or two of you, and I'm glad I didn't baptize anymore. Because God didn't send me to baptize, He sent me to preach the gospel. Paul understood what truly saves, washes the hearts of men. Not the waters of baptism. That's the symbol. That's the sign of it. But the reality is what God does in the heart through faith. Oh my. I realize that we are not in a circle that would believe in baptismal regeneration. That is to say that there's something magical in the waters of baptism and, you know, you get this magic done on you if we pass you through those waters. But folks, by and large... We live in a religious climate that believes in what I would call decisional regeneration. No, it's not baptism that saves us, but it is our choosing, our deciding, our willing that brings about regeneration. Now, I mean, you think of it. I I think of my upbringing in the circles that I was raised in fairly conservative circles. And yet that certainly was the impression that I had that this thing of being born again was basically up to me. I just needed to will it, to choose it. And if there's one thing that we ought to understand about the concept of being born again, it's that no, you can't do it yourself. That's the fundamental thing. Notice that Jesus could have used other words. Ezekiel didn't use the word birth. And there's places in the New Testament where the apostles are talking about the same thing. And they'll use words like regeneration or perhaps the word, the phrase, a new creation, new creature. It's talking about the same thing. But Jesus employs this word birth. Why do you suppose he does that? I suspect it has to do with this one little fact that absolutely nothing in the universe gives birth to itself. To be born is an entirely passive thing. I didn't cooperate. Nobody asked me if I wanted to be born. Nobody asked me for my vote. I was born. I was birthed. Something happened to me. I didn't do it. It, What you see here is the result, not the cause of birth. And of all the words Jesus could have chosen, and he could have chosen others because we see the apostles and the prophets using other words and other language to say that a man must be born again speaks of the fact that this is something that must be done to you. God has to do it. Now, I'm not, to, I'm not implying that, you're, that you just sit in your easy chair and wait for it to happen, or that there's not something here for you to do, for you to seek. 
But the bottom line is this. If God has not done this thing for you and in you, I don't really care what you've done. You're lost. You're ruined. You're undone. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a Nicodemus, a mover and a shaker, a bigwig, a knowledgeable man, a scholar. I don't care if God has not done this in you. If there's not something in your life that you can say, look, what you're seeing here is the result of a work, a gracious, merciful work of a sovereign God in my heart. God has done something in me. It wasn't that just I've turned over a new leaf. I've decided to be a vegetarian, you know, vegetarian instead of a meat eater. You know, I've decided to start wearing sandals instead of boots, you know, whatever. I've not just turned over a new leaf. God has done something fundamentally in my heart to change me. He's taken away my heart and He's replaced it with a heart that yearns to respond to His Word and to His will. He's put His Spirit within me rather than God always standing outside of me telling me, Thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do this and ready to spank my hand when I don't want to do it. It's that God has worked from the inside out. He has put within my insides a desire to obey Him, to please Him, want to be like Him, to bear His image. In other words, I'm born of God. I want to be like God. I want to act like Him. I want to think like Him. And as much as it is possible for a creature to be, I want to look like Him. I want to be made into His image, you see. I want to bear His resemblance, His moral character. Because I've been born of God. Oh, look earlier in the Gospel of John, in John 1. Again, I I realize this almost sounds so strange because we're so accustomed and akin to thinking in other terms that the new birth can be accomplished by my decision. When John spends a great deal of time to teach us, it's just the opposite. Look in John 1, verse 12. He just got through saying that Jesus came to His own, but His own received Him not. But look at verse 12. And as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on His name. And you say, well, there it is. See, you just got to choose. You just got to decide. Read the next verse. These who believed, who are they? Who were born. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Emphatically, it's not of human production. It is not a birth of blood. Now, that is a phrase that's used to speak of one's natural birth. It's not the fact that you were born of the right race and of the right people, the right parentage. It's not a birth of the will of man, the preacher or the pope can't will you born again, and it is not of the will of the flesh, your own will. These who have received Christ, says John, were born, but they're born of God. It was not their doing, it was His doing. And yet, though God's got to do it, May I say it again, ye must be born again. Ye must. George Whitfield, his favorite sermon, his favorite topic in the Great Awakening was the subject, ye must be born again. A man came to him and said, why is it that you preach so much on ye must be born again? And Whitfield looked at him and says, because, dear sir, dear sir ye must be born again. <laughs> Do you see? Do you get it? Oh, I'm telling you, you can't do it, folks. But you must. You must. And there's that dilemma. What what do I do then? You say, preacher, on the one hand, you're telling me I can't do this for myself. I can't make myself a new heart. I can't put God's Spirit within my own heart. And I'm saying, yes, you've got it. If you've got that much, you're right on the right track. You can't do this for yourself. God's got to do it. 
then I turn around and preach to you on the authority of God's Word. You must be born again. If ever you will see or enter the kingdom of heaven, you must. Well, what are you telling me to do? I'm telling you to go camp out at the back door of God's mercy. I'm telling you to go to the one who can do what you can't do for yourself. I'm telling you to go find a Savior. In Him, says John, not only was He the light of men, but John says in Him was life. Here is a Savior who has the ability to communicate life. I believe I'd go find that fellow. Oh, I think back to my surgery a few years ago and thinking, well, Brother Mark, you know, what if you found out that you've got this problem, you've got this terrible problem, and you can't solve it for yourself? Well, that's what I found out. You say, what do you do? Well, I go see the fellow who can solve it. You say, well, are you just in despair? Are you hopeless? Well, I'm hopeless in myself. But if you tell me there's a fellow over there, he can solve your problem, I believe I can go see that fellow. Well, you say, well, wait a minute, this is real expensive. Poor folks like you can't, you know, you can't afford this type of thing. What is to prevent me going and asking for mercy? What's to prevent me from asking for charity? For a handout? Oh, my friend, that's what I'm telling you. If you don't have it, you must have it. And the only place you're ever going to get it is from Jesus, the Son of God. We see examples. Oh, I suppose we could spend the rest of the afternoon going around this room because I see face after face after face that a few years ago, in some cases, and others a little longer than that, at the last place on earth that you or me expected to see you was in this room. I mean, I, we don't even have the time to do it, but we could have testimony after testimony after testimony. Because you see, those that are born again are like the wind. We don't know where they came from. We don't know their origins. It's just like one day they... Here they were. They showed up. Well, how many times that's happened to me. I look out and here's a face. Never saw them before. Don't know where they came from. All of a sudden they just turn up. And suddenly they're interested in things that they wasn't interested in before. They're interested in hearing things they didn't want to hear before. They're interested in doing things they didn't want to do before. Something's going on. Suddenly the name of Jesus becomes so precious when they had no use for him before. Suddenly the things of the Word of God, that's their meat and their drink, they'd rather study the Word than eat when they had no use for it before. Suddenly to be with the people of God, that's their family, that's where they want to be, had no use for them before. You see, something's going on. You say, well, preacher, you did a good job of preaching, you know, converted those folks. I didn't do a thing. I just proclaim God's Word, and I'll tell you, He's got to do it. Oh, I've learned that in some 20-some-odd years in the ministry. That I can do absolutely nothing. But oh, I tell you, I have been pleased to see God on occasion take people and turn them inside out and put a desire, a want-to in their heart where none was before. What about you? Where are you? You may be Nicodemus, well thought of, respected, moral. My friend, unless you be born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. So I tell you these things not to plunge you in despair. Oh, I hope I do cause you to despair of yourself. If there's anything in you that's ever going to get this done. Oh, I hope I bring you to the end of your rope. What you've heard this morning. If you're standing on one leg, I hope it got knocked out from under you. That all the props, that if you're hoping in anything you've done, that all of that would be destroyed and knocked out from under you. That your hope be only and solely in Jesus Christ and what He's done. May God be pleased that it be so. Let's pray. Father, help us. For, Father, we face here the humbling, humiliating fact that we're helpless, lost, undone, unsalvageable, irreclaimable. 
And Father, the mess we've gotten ourselves into is not a mess that we can clean up ourselves. The hole into which we've fallen, there is no way out except one come from above to rescue us. Father, thank you for Jesus who came to redeem and rescue lost, undone sinners to give life to the dead. And thank you that we can confess that we have tasted of this ourselves. And though we are not what we ought to be, and not what one day we're going to be, but, oh, Father, thank you we're not what we used to be. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. New people. Father, thank you for the reality of what we read here. We know it is so because you said it and we have experienced it in our own heart. Lord, I know not the case of those sitting before me this day, but Lord, you do. You know their need. May you, Father, through the power of your Spirit and the truth of your Word, may you do, Father, what only you can do. May you cause these, Father, who see themselves as hopelessly lost, may they seek after your Son who has life in himself and is able to communicate that life to others. Would you draw them unto him, cause them to seek him, and cause them, Father, not to be content with anything else than new life, a new heart. Not just to be religious, not just to put on an act or going to church and reading the Bible and doing all these things. But Father, that they've experienced new life. They have a new heart. Father, let us not be content with anything else. Help us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.